Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we pick up with verse 27 this morning, and I'll be reading through verse 36. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light, but when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. I find it interesting how language changes over time. You see this in your Bibles. You pick up a King James Bible, and sometimes you're wondering, what do these words mean? But phrases and words creep into the language. And they're used in ways that sometimes they were never used before. Like, the word issues, when we really mean problems. Maybe we think it sounds nicer, I don't know. I just can't imagine opening up one of Luther's sermons or Spurgeon's sermons and reading them saying to the congregation, you know, you people have a lot of issues. <laughs> it's not how language was used then. One of the issues we hear about quite a bit has to do with commitment. Oh, him. <laughs> He's got commitment issues. I think a lot of the other issues that people have actually can be boiled down to commitment issues. Have you ever spoken to someone who would like to be a vegetarian in theory? But bacon. It just won't commit. I've been playing guitar since I was 13. 
I should be far more advanced as a guitar player than I am. I can't play lead, I really don't know scales, I'm clueless when it comes to music theory. Why? It's not because I can't physically do it, although some might argue I'm not smart enough to do it. The real reason is I just haven't committed myself. I'd rather sit down and write a song than do what it takes to become really proficient, proficient on the instrument. That's always sounded like a lot of work. It's a matter of commitment. It's a matter of priority. We had a rather awkward few moments last week talking about the need to be here on time for worship. And thank you, by the way, for taking what was said in a humble, receptive way. At least those that I've spoken to received it well. But why is something like that a struggle at all? There are all kinds of immediate reasons. I got to bed late last night, got involved in something this morning, lost track of the time. I didn't realize we need to stop for gas. But like so many things, the real reason lies beneath that kind of thing. At the root, it's commitment. It's what we're going to prioritize in our lives. Why are there so many who have been here in our church for quite some time who consider Red Mills to be their church and yet have never pursued or followed through on becoming a member? Why are there those who have been Christians for years who have not been obedient in baptism? All kinds of reasons could be given, but at the root, it's an issue of commitment. Brothers and sisters, wholehearted commitment is essential to true and vital Christianity. It is the essence of discipleship. Andrew Murray, well-known 19th century pastor in South Africa, puts it this way. The true pupil, say of some great musician or painter, yields his master a wholehearted and unhesitating submission. In practicing the scales or mixing the colors, in the slow and patient study of the elements of his art, he knows that it is wisdom simply and fully to obey. It is this wholehearted surrender to his guidance, this implicit submission to his authority, that Christ asks. We come to him asking him to teach us the lost art of obeying God as he did. The only way of learning to do the thing is to do it. The only way of learning obedience from Christ is to give up your will to Christ and to make the doing of his will the one desire and delight of the heart. The one desire and delight Jesus wanted people to understand exactly what was involved in being one of his disciples. He wanted people to understand what it means to be committed to following him. And so on his journey to Jerusalem, which is what we're seeing here in this section of Luke, 
He gave an assortment of sayings in which he was returning to the subject which he has discussed previously. What is the nature, what are the essentials of discipleship? How does our commitment to Christ manifest itself in our lives, moment by moment, day by day, year by year? And so we want to look at this passage in terms of discipleship, because that's what, what Jesus is, is, is getting at. Let me briefly give you the outline so you know where we're going. Number one, disciples obey the word. See that in verses 27 and 28. Secondly, disciples believe in the resurrection. Verses 29 to 32. And then in verses 33 through 36, disciples reflect the light of Jesus. Let's take a look at each one briefly. We looked at verses 27 and 28 briefly last week, actually. But verse 28 in particular is a transitional verse. That is, it functions in two ways. It serves first as the conclusion of what has come before. That's how we saw it last week. But it's also the introduction now to what follows. And it's the first essential element of discipleship. A disciple obeys the word of God. As we saw last week, at one point in his journey, Jesus uh, cast a demon out of a man who was mute. Witnessing this miraculous power, some people accused him of accomplishing that act through the power of Satan. Beelzebul, as he was called here, which in first century Israel was a common name for Satan. Knowing what they were saying, Jesus responded to their accusation by demonstrating the irrationality of their argument and by proclaiming the truth that what he did, he did by the power and the authority of God. And as he said these things, a woman who was in the crowd listening said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. This woman expressed a sentiment that was common in those days, namely that a mother was blessed by the accomplishments of her son. But rather than receive her compliment with thanks, Jesus says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And as we said last week, Jesus was not really contradicting her, not really saying that she was wrong, so much as she was incomplete. Mary was greatly blessed. But Mary was not blessed because of her son's accomplishments. She was blessed because of her obedience to the word of God. She was blessed because when the angel came and spoke to her, she was obedient. And then, when Jesus grew to a man, she was obedient to him as well. And so Mary exhibits in her own life that first essential element of being a disciple. In the end, her most important relationship to Jesus was not as a mother to a son, but as a sinner to her Savior, as a disciple to her Lord. Jesus was teaching that an essential element in discipleship is obedience. 
in obedience in this context to the word of God. Disciples of Jesus Christ obey the word of God. They do not pick and choose what portions of scripture they are going to obey. They seek to obey all of the word. In my preparation for this message, I came across a story of an 81-year-old man named Robert Kupfer, Kupfer Schmidt. Kupfer Schmidt. Robert was extremely inconsiderate and having a name so difficult for me to pronounce. So for the rest of the story, I'm just going to call, going to call him Kupfer Schmidt. No, I'll just call him Robert. Robert had a friend who was a pilot. And on June 17th of 1998, he and his pilot friend were flying in a Cessna 172 single-engine plane from Indianapolis to Muncie, Indiana. And during the flight, every passenger's worst nightmare occurred. The pilot slumped over and died right there in the controls. The Cessna went into a nosedive. Robert had the presence of mind to, to, to grab the controls and pull up on the wheel. He knew that much. Pull back on the wheel, the plane goes up. He immediately gets on the radio and he calls for help. And flying nearby were two other pilots who hear his mayday call, and those pilots proceed to provide Robert with an impromptu crash course, pardon the expression in this context, in flying. They begin to give him a steady stream of instructions. They told him how to climb and how to steer, and the scariest but most important part of all, no doubt, how to land all while guiding him toward a nearby airfield. Those two pilots continued to circle that airfield until this terrified and totally inexperienced man was ready to attempt the landing. Emergency vehicles, of course, were called out, and they were ready for what seemed like an impending disaster. Witnesses said that the nose hit the ground first, somewhere around the center of the runway, bounced a few times, and then the tail hit the ground. And the plane ended up in a patch of grass next to the runway, and Robert was escorted off the plane alive and without injury. There's only one reason that man survived that day. He was committed to landing that plane safely. I'm going to guess that in all of his 81 years, his mind had never been so focused as it was in those moments. He was listening with great intensity to every word that he was being told. And then hearing the words of those pilots, he committed himself to remembering and obeying their words. He listened and he followed those instructions as if his life depended on it, because of course he did. Robert's earthly physical life depended on his attention to those two pilots. Eternal life 
depends upon one's attention to the God who speaks in his word, telling us how we might obtain eternal life. Yes. Because everyone born into this world is on a plane heading for a crash. And there's only one way to avoid it. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our evangelistic team went out, I believe for the last time this season. And I'm sure that everyone who does that would tell you that as they stand on the street corner proclaiming clearly the instructions necessary for eternal life, what characterizes most of those who, who pass by, and even those who will stop and interact on some level, is inattention. This shouldn't surprise us. Scripture tells us that people are dead in their sin, their hearts are like stone, there is a veil over their minds, they are blind and deaf to the truth, they are unable to understand spiritual things. Unless, through the preaching of the gospel, the sovereign Lord gives new life. And gives the ability to see and to hear. Unless the Lord does that, people re will remain in that condition. So when we speak to people and they are inattentive to the only thing that will save them, we ought not be surprised. When we speak to people and nothing gets through, when we speak to people and they respond as if it's nothing more than an interesting philosophical discussion, or they use it as an opportunity to mock and to ridicule, we ought not be surprised. You know what ought to surprise us? What ought to surprise us is how inattentive we are. Imagine what would happen if we, the disciples of Jesus, listened to and obeyed the word of God with the same earnestness with which Robert listened to those instructions from those two pilots. Imagine what would happen in your life, in this church, in our communities, if we did that. First essential element of discipleship is that disciples obey the word of God. Second essential element of discipleship is that disciples believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You might have wondered why we were singing what many would refer to as an Easter hymn this morning, when Christmas is on the horizon. Well, it's because Jesus is talking about his resurrection here. And our discussion of and celebration of the resurrection is not to be relegated to one time a year. Luke said that when the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, verse 29, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, there was a time when I would be able to read that verse and then simply go on, 
because, well, we all know the story of Job. But sadly, the heritage and the common background knowledge, which was once nearly universal among believers and unbelievers alike, doesn't exist any longer. It can't be assumed. So let me briefly summarize what Jesus is talking about here. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, and he was called by God to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, which was at that time the capital of the Assyrian Empire. However, Jonah decided that that was something he'd rather not do. And so he fled from God and bought a ticket on a boat going in the opposite direction from Nineveh. Scripture tells us that God sent a storm upon the boat, and Jonah, knowing that this storm was because of his disobedience, told the sailors they needed to throw him over the side. And they did. And the storm stopped. But God wasn't finished with Jonah. On the principle that God disciplines those whom he loves, the book of Jonah says that God appointed a great fish, not a whale, a great fish to swallow Jonah, and that Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. And the text goes on to make this very interesting statement. In the very next verse, if you were to read through Jonah, you would see this. After saying that Jonah had been in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, it says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Then. Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights, and then he prayed. I don't know about you. <laughs> Pretty sure I'd be praying sooner than that. Well, after three days, Jonah prayed, and his prayer was one of repentance. Having brought Jonah to repentance, then, we read there in the book of Jonah that the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And Jonah went and preached to the city of Nineveh as he had been commanded. And as a result, an amazing revival took place through the preaching of Jonah, and the people of Nineveh also repented and were spared from the judgment that God said he was going to bring upon One of the things that is always interesting to me about the book of Jonah is that when Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, the only thing he is told is to go and tell them that judgment's coming. In that initial instruction given to Jonah, there's not a word said about repentance. And seeing what happens then throughout the book and the result of the city repenting, I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is this. The fact that God responds to the repentant one 
is obvious. Didn't even need to be said. If we repent, God forgives. If we repent, God relents. That's just so many wonderful things in that, that book of Jonah. But that's certainly one of them. Jesus goes to that story and talks about a sign. Just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Went to a church once in which the pastor was preaching on Jonah. And in the course of his message, one of the things he said was, doesn't really matter whether you believe Jonah really happened or not. It does. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus assumes Jonah really happened. Jesus assumes the truth mm -hmm. of the entire scripture. Every jot and tittle. And Jesus goes back to the story of Jonah. And says, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now the question here in Luke is, what is this sign which Jesus is referring to? Luke doesn't explicitly describe it. Luke assumes... We know what it is. Matthew doesn't make that assumption. Matthew tells us very clearly. Matthew 12, verse 40, he says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah is the sign of resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, Jesus is going to be in the belly of the earth. Mm -hmm. And then as Jonah rose, so to speak, so will Jesus. Mm -hmm. He was clearly referring to his own death and burial and resurrection from the dead. In the same way that Jonah was entombed in the belly of the fish, Jesus will be entombed in the earth for three days and three nights before rising again. So the sign of Jonah is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was teaching that as an essential part of discipleship. Believe in the resurrection. When people come along and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't buy all of that miraculous stuff. They just told you they're not Christians. Jesus went on to say that the people of Nineveh would rise up in judgment against the people of Jesus' day because they did not believe. And when Jesus rose, they wouldn't believe that. It's one of the amazing things. After the resurrection of Jesus, you have people who witnessed the resurrection. You have all these soldiers 
were stationed there at the tomb. They witnessed the resurrection. They knew what had happened. And they went back and told the high priests, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, what had happened. And so you have multiple witnesses saying that Jesus rose, right? Otherwise, they, 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 they can't say they lost him. <laughs> that would be a little embarrassing. And not good for your health. You're a soldier at that point. So they've got to go back and tell the truth. God did something here. It's not my fault. And yet, after the reality is known, what does the high priest of the Sanhedrin do? Go tell people the disciples stole the body. They knew what it had, and they refused to accept it. You're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You need to believe in the resurrection. And if you're going to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then there isn't any other miracle in the scripture that should give you a problem. And Jesus went on to say about the people of Nineveh that they would rise up in judgment against this generation that Jesus is now speaking to because this generation would not believe the resurrection. And in addition, you have this queen of the south who traveled more than a thousand miles to hear King Solomon who would also judge the people. This is how Jesus expresses this. Just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up in this generation at the, with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So you've got these pictures of the Queen of the South and those from Nineveh as witnesses. It is the day of judgment for this generation. You've heard a lot about courtrooms recently, haven't mm -hmm. Everybody's been watching the trials that have been taking place over the last couple of weeks. And that's what is being described here. Jesus is the judge. And the Nineveh, and, and this generation of Israelites are his are, are the defendants. And there are going to be witnesses called. The Queen of the South. The men of Nineveh. And they are going to come and stand with that generation at the judgment and they are going to condemn it. Mm. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Why? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. All this generation had to do was open their ears. Jesus was right there. And they refused. It's quite extraordinary. This queen of the south, as far as we know, had no exposure to the truth of Moses in the first five books of the Bible or to the preaching of the Hebrew prophets. She is perhaps all the way from Ethiopia. That's most likely what Queen of the South means. And the Israelites thought that part of the world was the virtual end of the world. At least if you're traveling south. And she came a long way having heard of the reputation of Solomon and she came bearing gifts. And she came to hear Solomon's wisdom. And what Jesus is saying is this. When she, heard that, uh, uh, when she heard of Solomon, there was something in her that resonated. And she recognized that she needed to go. And she needed to hear more. She needed to hear in person. She longed and she thirsted for that which she could receive from Solomon. And now he contrasts her with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the others in the multitude who have heard wisdom incarnate. They have heard the Logos, the Word made flesh. They have heard Jesus himself. They haven't gone a long way. The only traveling they would do is to go to Jesus in order to track him but not to listen to him. He's come to them. He's right there in their midst. And they don't pay him any attention whatsoever. Except to be an obstacle. In fact, when he speaks wisdom, some of the crowd goes so far as to say, he's a saint. How blind could they be? It's an indication you see of their hard and dark hearts. Their eyes have not been enlightened by the true lamb. If they'd already, if they'd really known and understood their Bibles, they would have immediately recognized the truth of what he was saying. They, it, it would have resonated with them. You notice that? Is that your experience? When you sit under the teaching of the Word of God, when you open your Bible and read it for yourself, if you know a little deep in your heart about what the real story of the Bible is, and then you hear a faithful preacher doesn't have to be a famous preacher. All it has to be is a faithful preacher of God's Word. And what happens when you're sitting under a faithful ministry? The Spirit of God within you resonates with what you're hearing. I recognize this. This is true. I'm being taught things that Maybe I've never quite put together before, but 
it's true because it's here in the word and it's impacting my heart in a way that I need. And I, I recognize it because I've been in my Bible and the Bible has begun to shape my thinking and my heart and my mind. And so as that faithful preacher ministers the word, I recognize truth. And when the man who is not faithful preaches, I can recognize error. I can only surmise that this describes many of you. Many of you travel much farther than most in order to come and sit under the teaching of the Word here at Red Mills. Why? It's not because of all the programs. It's not because of worship that makes you feel like you're at a rock concert. We've already established it's not because I'm that funny. You do it because you found the Word of God in this place. Amen. You do it because you have found meat yes. in this place. Mm -hmm. That's what you hunger for. Yep. And when you find it, it resonates with you. And you're willing to drive 30, 40 minutes to get to a place where you will be fed. Amen. The fact that these people who knew a lot about the Bible, didn't respond to Jesus' wisdom, shows you that they didn't really understand their Bible. I'm, I'm just, just curious, because this is, is a while ago. How many of you remember a guy named Harold Camden? I cannot tell you the number of times people came to me himself in scripture and I see how the Lord is exalting himself 
in my heart, in the, the, this preaching of his word, do we thirst after that? Do we want the wisdom of God more than anything else? The fact that the scribes and the Pharisees and the others in this crowd rejected Jesus. He could sit there, they could listen to God himself and then ascribe it to Satan. It's just a revelation of who they are. Dead in sin. Hearts of stone. Blind. Deaf. That's why Jesus goes into this lamp story here at the end of the passage. First essential element of discipleship is obedience to the Word of God. Second is believing in the resurrection of Jesus, which necessitates that you love His Word and you believe every bit of it. And then third, disciples reflect the light of Christ. Some of the people Jesus was speaking to, as we've already read, demanded a sign. They said that they would believe Jesus if he gave some convincing sign that he was, in fact, Son of God, Savior of sinners. But Jesus went on to illustrate that the problem was not the need for a sign. Rather, the problem was that they did not believe. Belief has to come first, or you'll never get the sign. A few chapters down the road. Luke is going to be talking about a man who died. We don't know his name. He's just called the rich man. But there was a poor man who died at the same time. He used to eat the crumbs off of the rich man's table. His name was Lazarus. And they went to two different places after they died, Jesus says. One is referred to as Abraham's bosom. And the rich man was in torment. And the rich man says this, this is in Luke 16. I beg you, Father. First, just he, all he wanted was a dip of water on his finger. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and pull off my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. And Abraham explains there's a chasm between us, and, and one cannot go from where I am to where you are. So then his second request, as he is there in torment, is this, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The idea being, someone comes back from the dead, my brother's will see that and they'll believe and they won't have to come to where I am. But Abraham responds. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You'll get the resurrection if you believe God's word. And then seeing the resurrection, everything else is obvious. Mm -hmm. 
gospel if you're called to believe God's word. If you don't believe God's word, there's no hope. You won't believe anything. These people demanded a sign. They say they'll believe in Jesus if he gives them some sign. Jesus says the problem is not the sign. The problem is your heart. I can give you all the signs in the world. You still won't believe. Because your heart is dead. Then, so, so he says in verses uh, 33 and 34, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar or under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who, may, who enter may see the light. The eye is the light of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. And then comes the warning in verse 35, then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. A failure to understand the person and work of Jesus is not because Jesus did not give enough evidence. All kinds of people want to say that. Every atheist I've ever spoken to has said some variation of that. If God is real and I do stand before him someday, I'm going to ask him why he didn't give me enough evidence. And in that statement, you see the problem. And a refusal to acknowledge what God has done, which is to show forth himself in creation. And with the knowledge of himself within every human being, and then to take on flesh. And people still refuse. Some of you will remember an actor named Peter Falk, most well known for playing very eccentric but surprisingly brilliant detective named Columbo. In our house, he was known as the grandfather in Princess Bride. In real life, Falk had the glass eye, resulting from an operation to move, remove a tumor when he was only three. In spite of this missing eye, he became a pretty good high school athlete. And he used to like to tell the story of uh, being called out at third base during a baseball game, and afterwards, he removed his eye and handed it to the umpire and said, maybe you'll do better with this. <laughs> People who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners might as well have glass eyes. It is what Jesus refers to here when he talks about the eye being bad. But those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners reflect the light of Jesus back into the world. Verse 36 says, If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined, as when the light illumines you with its rays. You become the light. And you send out into a dark world rays of Jesus. Amen. Jesus' disciples obey the word of God. They believe the resurrection. 
They reflect his light into the world. That is, they live brightly for Jesus. They live in such a way that their faithful service to Jesus brings about eternal results. Mm -hmm. So, having, I trust, been attentive to the words of Christ, we who are his disciples must now examine ourselves to see if there is evidence of these three essential elements of discipleship. Are these things present in our own lives? Do we obey the word of God? Do we believe the resurrection? Do we reflect the light of Christ? Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India in the first part of the 20th century, also a, a hymn writer. She was a truly remarkable person. She obeyed the word of God. She believed in the resurrection, and she reflected the light of Christ. She once said this, Certain it is, that the reason there is so much shallow living, much talk, but little obedience, is that so few are prepared to be like the pine on the hilltop, alone in the wind for God. Alone in the wind for God. That is just a great image. A lone pine tree on a hilltop, alone in the wind for God. Don't worry about what others may say or do. Live for Jesus. Exhibit these things in your life. Obey the word of God. Believe in the power of God as exhibited in the resurrection. Reflect the light of Jesus. If necessary in those ways, be willing to stand alone in the wind for God. Because the reality is, in our faithfulness, we are never alone. The wind may blow and we may feel alone in the moment, but Christ's promise is ours and His promise is true. He will never leave us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the light that dwells in all of those who have come to trust in Christ. May that light, Father, shine forth from us into this dark world, so that through us, Father, you might complete the building of your church, so that Jesus, who is with us always, might come again and be with us in person 